Hello, left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. We're not flippers, Jim. We um, Once we find a property, once we get into it, you know, it takes a good solid year to really know the whole property because you go through every season of the, of the year. At that point, you know all the issues, you know where the problems are. If it's a good property and you like it, why not keep it? And it's doing well for you. I know there's a lot of people out there that are buying and flipping it. That's just not our model. We like to, we like to buy and hold and, and generate that cash flow. That's coming right up. But first, I want to introduce TribeVest, our show sponsor. I have Travis Smith here, the founder and CEO. Travis, you know I'm a fan of your platform and I'm a member in four different tribes. In fact, I like the platform so much, I'm also an investor. Can you share some of the ways you think TribeVest can help build wealth for passive investors? Thanks, Jim. Well, as you know, we've built a platform that empowers people to easily and safely form investor tribes. If you're a part of an investor tribe, you can participate in deals that maybe you wouldn't or couldn't on your own. And I think that's why TribeVest is so popular amongst passive investors. Think about it. Deals start at 25,000, but I've seen investment minimums as high as 100 or even $200,000. And I don't care who you are. Those are big checks to be writing as a solo investor. But as a tribe, each member can drastically lower their capital requirement and spread the risk on the deal. Or another way to look at it is where maybe as a solo investor, you might invest in one deal, but with your tribe, you could invest in five, maybe 10 deals. You can think of tribe investing as a wealth building experience with the people you know, like, and trust. If there are left fielders who are interested in learning more, please have them check out tribevest.com or reach out to me directly. Jim, we are thrilled to be a part of Passive Investing from Left Field and excited to listen to your interview with this week's guest. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the left field community. This is Josh McCown from Capital Hacking, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field with Jim Pfeiffer. This is the most important thing you can listen to today. So today we're fortunate to have Jeff Cook, the CEO of Cook Properties with us. He began investing in multifamily in around 1997 and bought his first mobile home park back in 2008. Now he is CEO of a family-owned and operated company that owns commercial, retail, office, self-storage, and increasingly mobile home parks. Um, also, if you go on his website on the team page, you will see that he has a, a clear love for dogs because they are definitely featured. It's a pretty cool website. So, Jeff, welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate it. I, I welcome the opportunity. Yeah, we certainly love dogs, man. They make such a difference in uh, 
you know, most days are, are, are hurried and fast paced there at the office and the dogs just uh, put it all back in perspective. So, yeah. And it's a nice touch on your website too. I like that. Thanks. So if you could start out, just kind of tell us a little bit about your journey, how you got into real estate and where you came from and where you are now. Sure. So I started off with um, multifamily, uh, single family doubles in the city of Rochester. I uh, bought my first uh, single family uh, here in Rochester. It was actually just going to be a house that I lived in with a couple of roommates. My roommates uh, backed out of living with me to be, to be roommates. So I wasn't sure what quite what to do. So like many other people that get into you know various careers, um, I fell into real estate kind of by accident. So I started renting the house out. Uh, it went very well. And then I just started buying more singles and doubles in, in the city of Rochester. I got up to about 100 units. Sold off about three dozen or so, and then sold the balance um, in two thousand, right before the crash in 2000, 2008, right around there. After that, I bought a my first mobile home park in uh, around two thousand eight. I also bought a couple of uh, office properties and some storage units. The mobile home park and the storage units went very well. The office went not not as well, but it was still okay. So I really, really fell in love with the storage unit and the the mobile home park uh, business model. Interesting. So you started out with single family homes, as many people do. And then usually, you know, once you get a few single family, people maybe get a fourplex or an eightplex. Two questions. What made you sell all of them right before 2008, which seems like pretty good timing? And then why mobile homes, self-storage and office? Why didn't you stay with what you'd already been doing? Yeah, so we did have some, we had singles, doubles, we did buy some triples, we got, you know, a couple 10 units, you know, 15 unit buildings. So I certainly like that as far as like, you know, thinking about the future with, uh, with the scale, you know, I much preferred to have, we would say, you know, we, let's get all of our problems in, in one building instead of having, you know, scattered sites. So we certainly liked having the, the larger scale properties. We decided to sell, I just, the market was hot, it was right before the bubble. And uh, to be frank, you know, I, I had done it for almost 10 years and I just I had enough. I still liked real estate. I just, the, the clientele I was dealing with was difficult and it required a lot of management. So I was just ready for a change. And, you know, I threw, I threw up my properties up on LoopNet kind of on a, on a whim and uh, someone came and, and wanted to buy all of them. So we figured it'd be a good time to sell and, and we did. And it worked out well. We were able to cash out and uh, look into some other commercial opportunities. My, my biggest concern was going from um, like low-income uh, city uh, residents to low-income country residents. So that's what was a big concern of mine prior to getting into, prior to buying my first mobile home park. Fortunately, the first park that I bought was a very nice park um, up in Sandy Creek, about halfway between uh, Syracuse and Watertown. We still own it today. Uh, it was very nice. It was built in the 90s, uh, primarily seniors. So it was a nice, easy park for me to uh, get my feet wet um, in the mobile home park space. I also wanted to get into more of the commercial sector just because it seemed, it seemed really attractive because there wasn't as much management that you know, I had been used to with the, with the residential apartments. But truth be told, as I continued down the process, the, the mobile home parks are what really uh, caught my attention and you know, what, we, uh, what we fell in love with, for sure. Okay. And I just want to step back one more time here to the to the sale of all those single family and small multis. When you sold them all at once, what were the tax consequences? Did you do anything to uh, mitigate or defer the taxes on on those sales? Yeah, I had a failed 1031 attempt. The check that I got at closing, I, I did set aside enough to cover the taxes. Uh, we did try to do a 1031, and 
I don't remember exactly what happened, but for some for some reason, I don't, we didn't get everything identified, and the ones that identif- identified didn't. They just didn't end up going through. So unfortunately, I had to pay. Back then, it was almost forty percent in um, in capital gains and, and depreciation recapture. So it hurt, but I was happy to get out of the city and, and move on to a bigger and brighter uh, things. So you know, when I sold a lot of my multifamily, you know, I went to my uh, tax advisor and asked, you know, how can I get rid of the tax? And he gave me some options, but he also said, you know, sometimes when you make some money, it's a good thing, and you're just gonna have to suck it up and pay the taxes now. <laughs> Of course, we always look for ways to defer and 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 all that. But if you can't, you just got to say, "Well, I made money, so yeah, okay, right?" No, I agree. Yeah, if you're making, if you're paying taxes, you're making money. It, it's uh, try, tries to make us feel better, you know. Exactly. You know, on that same 1031 front, Jim, I did have um, later on. I did, we did, me and my brother did sell a property that we had as a mixed use property, and we did do a 1031. I don't know if if I didn't have the pressure of the 1031 that I would have bought the property that we ended up buying. So it can kind of be like a double-edged sword. You defer the taxes, but would you really buy that property if you weren't under the gun to, you know, do the 1031 exchange? We still own the property, but it's it's a park. But it's one of our, I guess I would say, our least lesser desirable parks. Yeah, and that is definitely a downside of the 1031. Not only does it force you to hustle and find a property that you might not otherwise buy, it also forces you to upgrade and keep getting bigger properties and bigger loans. And that might not, you know, that for me, when I was selling, I was trying to downsize and get smaller investments. And so I didn't want to keep going on the larger investments. So it's important yep. for people to evaluate that when they're looking to sell and do the 1031 or however you're going to mitigate taxes. So we've decided not to sell anymore. We only do refi- We only refinance now. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> that works? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Oh, that's awesome. So talk a little bit about New York. So you're you're mostly, I know you're located in New York, but it looks like most of your investments are in New York. Have you ever thought about going to other markets? And, and you know, typically, I don't find a lot of syndicators in New York, which is one of the reasons I'm, I'm investing with your, your fund is to get some diversification away from the standard markets where everybody's in. So I like finding a syndicator like you who's in a particular market. Can you talk about New York a little bit? Sure. We're, we're not afraid of New York. Uh, me and my brother love New York. We, you know, we're, we've been born and ra- we were born and raised here. Um, spent all of our lives here, except for you know a few years here and there during the the college college days. I've been doing real estate here in in New York since the late '90s. Brian's been involved since uh, around 2010. So we're we're super familiar with New York. We're familiar with all the different regions of New York. We're familiar with the regulations, the the difficult regulations, especially as how how it pertains to and and running rental properties. Again, we're we're not afraid of New York. We we specialize in it. We've been successful for you know almost 25 years now in New York State. It's just it's for us. It's it's what we know. You know, it's our it's our home, and uh, you know we're, we're we have very specific knowledge on how to on how to run our properties in New York State and, and get along with with the business climate. The fact that a lot of sponsors, like you mentioned, aren't coming to New York. A lot of uh, national and regional um, park operators are not coming coming to New York or leaving New York um, presents an opportunity for us. I mean, we know that New York is going to have its trials and tribulations, you know, as, as other states will too. We just continue to, to plug along and, and just keep moving forward. Sometimes when things change, we, we change ourselves. But we're forced, we're forced to, and, and we welcome it. Just like when rent control went into effect in New York State back in the summer of uh, 2019, you know, we had to make some adjustments to how we operated our, our, our mobile home park business. And that's, you know, that's what we've done. You know, one of the, one of the big changes that, 
rent control brought for us was rent to own or lease to own option. So when they passed rent control, they essentially took that option away from us. Um, so now we either sell our homes or we uh, just rent them. And again, that was something we had to change in the way we did we did business. You know, again, it wasn't the our preferred option, but it's something that we're working with. And you know, again, we're being we're being uh, very successful with with our rentals. We actually just did an, an analysis a couple months ago on how long our renters are staying in our mobile home parks. And this is going back even before rent control. Our renters are staying on average about five years in our homes, which is far outweighs and, and just blows away what a normal apartment uh, resident would stay in their apartment for. Yeah, certainly. So can you talk a little bit about when you buy a new park or the existing park? And you mentioned it a little bit, you you, you either own or rent the homes. Can you talk about the difference and what your preference is? And are you trying to move all of your parks into one type or, or the other? In New York State, our, you, know, you, you, can, you can increase NOI by a few different things, you know, management efficiencies, raising rents, or doing infill. Infill is by far the hardest, the hardest one of those three. But being in New York, that's, that's our, our big option and our big uh, way that we, that we increase NOI. We obviously can add some management efficiencies when we buy a park, which we do. But rent raises, we're, we're limited to 3% in New York State, which hasn't been a big deal. And we don't foresee it to be a big deal because all of our parks are at or near market rents, including ones that, we, that we're looking to purchase. Uh, if they're not at market rent, and then obviously it's not a, um, can't be in consideration in, in the purchase price. But getting back to your question on, on park-owned homes, um, we don't mind park-owned homes um, if they're newer. If they're older, 10 years older or more, we like to get rid of those as quickly as we can and sell them to the residents uh, just because of the maintenance and the you know increased repairs and maintenance. Newer homes, though, again, we don't mind because you know they're newer. They're, there's not going to be a lot, of, a lot of issues with repairs and, and maintenance. Last year, we brought in, uh, in 2020, we brought in 75 new homes. In 2021, we're, we're on track. Well, we actually have ordered um, 200 homes. We've taken delivery so far. I think we're right around 80 homes so far for 21. And for 22, we'll probably be ordering somewhere in the neighborhood of about 250 new homes. As of right now, about eight of those homes we're, we're renting. Um, the other two we're selling for cash. We want to try to lower that number, so we're selling more. And we're looking at options to try to do that, either through third-party finance or we're actually looking at possibly setting up our own, I guess, quote-unquote bank. Um, we would be our own mortgage originator and uh, possibly setting up our own debt fund where we would finance, finance our residents ourselves. So the rent raises or the, the rent control in New York, does that apply to the home or to the pad that the home sits on or both? It applies to both, but it's only on legacy legacy tenants and residents. So, for example, if someone vacates a home or a pad, uh, then we can raise that rent to market. Okay, so so you're still able to get some rent raises because it seems to me that you know in the mobile home space, one of the ways that you can really drive NOI is to increase the pad rent because that's something that seems to be typically undervalued. But you still can't do that because only you're locked into that three percent for that as well. We are locked in the three percent, Jim. But for us, you know, before rent control, we we were generally raising our rents every other year, and they were generally in that kind of that three to four percent range every other year. So for us, three percent, we're okay with it. We actually do have an option to 
we can go all the way up to 6%. So an additional 3% if we have some capital expenditures that we can um, document, which, you know, 3% of your, of, of rent to go towards CapEx is, is pretty, is pretty small. And it can be simple, like, you know, pothole repair, you know, a fix to the community center or something like that. The only caveat is that the residents have 90 days to organize and challenge that additional 3%. If they don't do it within the 90 days, and then it goes into effect. But the 3% is a given every year. So it seems like the rent control probably hasn't hurt you. It's probably helped you because there's probably less competition now. Because as an investor, when I hear rent control in New York, I think, oh, don't want to invest there. But it sounds like from what you're saying, it hasn't slowed you down at all. Not at all. We've been, we've had a great couple of years um, going, you know, in, even since rent control, where we came up with a new theme of uh, we're na- navigating the blue waters of New York State because we are extremely, extremely blue. But yeah, it doesn't bother us. We're, we just, you know, we're, we're flexible. We're small enough to where we can move and, and, and switch gears if, if needed. So, Are you thinking at all about other markets? I think when you were starting your new fund, you were talking about maybe Michigan or some other places, but it seems like all of the properties that are going into the new fund are in New York. Is that accurate? No, that's totally correct. So originally we were, we were looking uh, New York State, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania and Massachusetts. Fortunately, we were just we were able to find enough properties in New York State to fill up our fund. We have all all the properties that we want to put into the fund under contract, or we've already closed on. We've closed on about half of them. Our total fund value is going to be right around sixty five million, and we, like I said, we've closed on about half of those um, contracts. We, we're still looking outside of New York State, but we're it'd primarily be like a larger portfolio buy. Me and Brian, we're not interested in starting. You know, starting with 100 pads here, 100 pads there, just primarily due to the competition. And without being, you know, too confident, I mean, we're really good. In, we're really good in New York State. We know all the players. Um, we know um, all of the, you know, the contractors. We have our own guys that we can send around New York State to do site work, to do pads, and to do our setup. We're, we're happy in New York. We, uh, we really like it. And what's the focus now? It seems like your focus now is mobile homes. I think the the fund, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think it started and you were going to do some mobile homes and self-storage, but you found all the mobile home deals and that's what's in the fund. So are you still interested in those other asset classes or are you really focusing on mobile homes? We're definitely focusing on mobile home parks. We um, we still have an interest in self-storage, but again, you know, we're, we're really good at the mobile home parks. Um, right now we have about 2,000 storage units. Um, Primarily in, up in uh, Watertown, New York, and then we have about 500 here here in the Rochester area. We would look at more units um, here in the Rochester area, but what we found is um, just we've owned the, the facilities up in Watertown for about a year now, and they're doing they're doing just fine. But we've also realized that again we're really good at mobile home parks, and we're not we're not as adept at storage facilities uh, just because we don't have as much experience and as much knowledge with them. And uh, we want to really focus on what we're doing really well, which is the mobile home parks. Um, we, we actually do have the, the Watertown facilities up for sale. So we are trying to liquidate those. And specific to the mobile home parks, how do passive investors or how should they evaluate a mobile home park for investing? So for multifamily, we're familiar with that. And for left field investors, we have a, a deal analyzer where we have 30 different metrics that we look at and try to determine, you know, are they within the range that we like? But when we see a mobile home park, you know, some of those same metrics we can use, IRR, cash on cash return, but we don't really have 
great metrics to, to really know what to look at. So can you talk a little bit about what passive investors should be looking at when they're evaluating a mobile home park deal? And then maybe some of the metrics that you like to look at and, and what some of those ranges might be. Well, I think, you know, whether it's a passive investor, uh, you know, limited partner or myself as a general partner, I want to align my interests as, as much as possible with the limited partners. So I think they should be looking at, you know, pretty much the same things that we're, that we're looking at, which, you know, of course, you know, the big ones, you know, cap rate, the amount of vacancy. I like to look at some of the demographics that are uh, surrounding the property that we're, that we're looking at. Uh, we like to be in, we like to stay in at a minimum, you know, tertiary markets are okay. Um, we like to stay, you know, fit at least 50,000 in the metro area, 50,000 population in the metro area. In New York State, we like to stick close to the thruway, which is uh, Interstate 90, which goes west from Buffalo, east to uh, Albany, and then down to New York City. And then we also like to stay along I-81, which runs from Watertown uh, north, Watertown the north, south, down to the Binghamton area. Not that we don't like rural areas, but we really like to have our parks that are close to those to those two main um, east, west, north, south roads. We like to look at the demog- the housing demographics. We like to see where the average rents are for for the local area. We like to see um, what the uh, what the average home home values are for home values. We like to st- we like at a minimum, you know, well over a hundred thousand uh, dollars for rents. We certainly don't want to be any higher than the local rents are um, for our as compared to our mobile homes. We at least want to be in that same same ballpark. If we're lower, that's great. If we're a little bit higher. You know, that's okay. Um, but again, we, we like to be lower. We do feel that a three-bedroom mobile home, the benefits of that is gonna, are going to far outweigh renting a three-bedroom apartment. Yeah, so, so cap rate, medium average housing, housing uh, value, uh, demographics, the, the size of the, the metro area. We like vacancy. You know, like I said, you know, depending on what the vacancy is, we love to find a park that'll, that'll cash flow at a six, at a six cap that has 30% vacancy. I mean, that's, for us, that's uh, that's that's a beautiful beautiful thing. We can we can do our infill and really uh, really drive the NOI and 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 hence drive the um, you know investor value going forward and, and the cash on cash returns. Obviously, that's another big another big one for for investors and for ourselves is uh, what's everyone going to be getting based on their cash investment. And when you talk about vacancy, does that mean vacant homes or vacant spots where you would do the infill? Well, it depends. So if, if they're newer homes, you know, to be honest with you, Jim, if we have a lot of vacant park-owned homes, that's a concern for us because we wonder why why are they vacant? If there's a lot of vacant pads, you know, you usually can, you know, justify that by, you know, mismanagement. Perhaps the owners are, are older. They've been doing it for a number of years. They don't, they don't want to go through the, the heavy lift process of, of doing infill. So we don't, we don't like to see a lot of vacant park-owned homes. Um, if there are, we We'll dig deeper to make sure there's an understandable story um, behind those. Another question for Travis Smith, the founder of TribeVest. Travis, I often talk about group investing and how it can ease someone into passive investing because they're investing with other people. Can you talk about the power of groups and how TribeVest can help new investors get started in syndication investing? I love this question because it reminds me of why we started TribeVest. My brothers and I, saw real estate as a way to hack wealth without having to give up our day jobs. And despite not having any real estate investment experience, we found confidence as a tribe and that we'd be making decisions together. 
We were up for the adventure. We valued the idea of learning and growing together. But we had a more obvious problem than lack of experience. We lacked capital. We had good incomes, but didn't have the lump sums of money to break into syndicate investing. We each committed to contributing $500 monthly. And that was our breakthrough. As a tribe, the capital added up fast. And it wasn't long before we had our first experience in true wealth building. We were now part owners of a physician's office building in beautiful Pasadena, California. And we've been building wealth ever since. So yes, TribeVest is a great tool for people to ease into passive investing because it makes it so easy. And it helps you take the most important step, the first one. If you start pulling capital, the deals will come. Jim, we realized that if our tribe could do it, any tribe could. By forming and funding our investor tribe, we secured a future we could have never imagined. It really did change our lives. So we've been talking a lot about mobile homes, but I know that you guys do more than that. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, your commercial retail office and a little bit about self-storage? Maybe you've, you've already chatted a little bit about that, but how have those assets performed, you know, during the pandemic? And then what, how do you see them performing moving forward? Yeah. So like I said, you know, parks are definitely our specialty. We, we love our parks. Storage is right behind it. We do have a, a couple hundred thousand square feet of office and retail space all of which actually we're, we are trying to sell and, and liquidate right now, except for our own um, office building here near the airport in Rochester. During the pandemic, uh, pretty much all of our properties performed really just fine. We had a couple of tenants that didn't, didn't pay their rent, but all in all, it, was, it was, really wasn't that bad. A couple of our larger tenants, uh, we own one retail plaza, Planet Fitness Plaza, and I think Planet Fitness did this over most of the country is when they shut down the gyms, they stopped charging their um, customers for, for monthly dues. Um, so they in turn stopped paying their rent. But fortunately, we were able to work with the bank to defer our mortgage payments. So, you know, it really wasn't that, that much of a, of a problem. So with our commercial properties, we, the big advantage that we see to commercial properties is that the management is much, much, much less intensive. You know, you can have a plaza, like, for example, Planet Fitness Plaza. You know, we sent a couple guys over there a couple of times. It's full, right? It's full right now, totally occupied. We send a couple guys over there once a week to check things out, you know, empty the garbage cans. And really, that's, you know, that's about it. There's just the management is just very, very low. The problem that we that we don't like with, with large plazas and office buildings is when we have a vacancy. We really like the consistent, stable cash flow of storage units and mobile home parks. And you just, you don't get that in the, in the retail and the office plazas. So, so that's really the primary reason that we're, we're trying to uh, sell those. So when you're um, talking to new investors, you know, I know there's a couple of uh, people that from left field investors, I think that made one of their first investments in, in the syndication space was, was with your organization. Can you talk about the conversation you have or, you know, when someone's going to wire you $50,000 to get into your deal, how do you talk to them? How do you encourage them and, and kind of give them the courage to write that first check? Well, at first, that, that's the, one of the most favorite parts of my day is when someone uh, is trusting us with their, with their money, with their money to invest. It's really important to me. I take a lot of pride in it. And I almost say that we're, we're more careful with investor money than, than we are with you know, Brian's and, and my own money. 
but yeah, it's, it's definitely a, tr- it's a huge trust, trust issue. And, um, you know, we try to get to know the, the investor, just like the investor tries to get to know us. You know, we tell them about our track record, you know, that we, you know, never, we've never lost money in the, you know, 20 plus years that we've been doing real estate. We also invest along with, um, not only are we the general partners, but we also take a share of the, um, limited, limited partners. Um, we're also limited partners. So we invest our own money, um, alongside everyone else. Just so everyone knows that our interests are as aligned as possible with with the investors, all of our fees that we generate, you know, acquisition fees, um, disposition, well, not disposition, but acquisition fees, uh, they stay in the deal. We don't cash those out um, once we close. Um, they they stay in. It's yeah, really just trying to get to get to know each other and, and um, getting the investor comfortable with us by again by just sharing our track record, you know, sharing our, our ideas of what we're going to do with with the properties that we're purchasing. Again, just getting comfortable with it, with each other. You know, the other thing too that I always try to stress, uh, Jim, is that you know we we don't use any third party managers. We're all, we're very we're a vertically integrated company. All of our own employees do do all of our own work, except for some slight work here and there. Where if the job is just too big, or if it's um if it's like a onesie twosie, um, where we got to do a couple of pads, like for example, like out near Albany, where it's you know four hours away. We might subcontract that out, um, but we, we feel that with us being a vertically integrated company, that's a huge advantage um, to investors. You, you talked about aligning your interests with investors. Can you talk about, like, if you were to be a passive investor and you were interviewing and trying to vet a sponsor, what are some of the questions you would ask to make sure interests were aligned? And what are some of the things that you would want to know before you did send that wire? Or send that check to them for fifty or a hundred thousand dollars. I would ask. Well, I'd ask about the uh, the splits, which our splits are eighty uh, percent to the to the LPs and twenty percent to the GPs. Which in today's in today's world, there is uh, pretty pretty generous to the LPs. We did that because two reasons. One, this is our it was our first fund. Prior to this, it was you know just friends and family investors. And secondly, we wanted to make sure that we filled the fund, given that it was our first fund and that it's it was primarily focused on. On, on New York State, I would ask them what the preferred uh, preferred return is, which for us is eight percent, which is pr- pretty standard these days. I want you know what the management fees are. Ours ours range between six to nine percent. The lower the management fee is, the less intensive the management that's required. Um, the higher the higher fee is going to be uh, required for those parks that have have a lot of infill that's required, because as you know, you know doing infill is uh, is a big deal and, and a, you know heavy lift. Again, you know, share our track record with with a potential uh, or as an LP, I would ask what the GP's track record is. Excellent. So, with the current fund you have, is it still open to investors? And can you also talk about some of the assets that are in there or going to be in the fund? Kind of the kind of the status of it right now. Great question. Thanks, Jim. So, right now, like I said, we have uh, sixty five million in assets that we have under contract. We have closed on approximately half of them. We're actually doing a closing right now with Fannie Mae for uh, two parks out in the western part of New York State. And then we have another, we'll have another small closing for a park outside of Ithaca that will probably be in uh, early, early May. And then we'll have one more large closing uh, in early June. So our fundraising deadline right now is, um, I've set it at May 15th, so approximately 30 days. Um, we still have a few million left to raise. I'm uh, very confident that we'll we'll probably get over oversubscribed to the fund. 
as far as the properties, uh, we have, uh, so we have uh, two properties out in Western New York in the Lockport area, which is the Buffalo MSA. Those are about 330 pads. Those are the ones that we're closing on right now as we speak. The We have one more that we closed on a couple weeks ago that's right outside of Rochester in, in a Rochester suburb called Town & Country. That's 135 pads. We have the one in uh, Ithaca area, Meadowbrook, that we'll be closing on in uh, early May. That's uh, 90 pads. So we have um, two parks, in the again, in the Buffalo MSA area that we closed on right before the end of the year, back in December. That was 255 pads. And then lastly, we have about 600 pads that are that we're closing on from one seller that go from Watertown down to the down to the Ithaca area. Overall, we have about 200 vacant pads that we're going to fill up over the next three to four years, and that's what, that's how we're going to drive a lot of our NOI. Actually, that's how we're going to drive all of our NOI growth. We will be refinancing um, a few of the properties in years three, four, and five, and we expect to return about 50 to 65 percent of the original uh, investor capital. Uh, at that time. Cash on cash returns are starting off uh, for the rest of this year, just under 9%. Um, and then we'll be up to 10 and change for 22. Uh, and then we go up about a point, point and a half the next couple of years, we get up to about 14% in year four, which is when we'll do our, our, our refinances. After that, the returns really just go through the roof because we'll be, we'll, we'll have returned so much of the capital uh, so we're really, you know, estimating our returns to be in the mid mid twenties, low to mid twenties, cash on cash. Cap rates we're starting off at uh, right around six percent, just a hair under six, and by the end of the hold in year year ten, we'll be uh, in the low nines. And you mentioned earlier that you don't really have any intention of selling the property. So is your plan just to keep refinancing until all the capital is is returned to investors, and then it's just a super long-term hold or is the fund going to, after 10 years, are you going to sell all the assets and, and return whatever's left? Yeah. So what we'd like to do is after the 10 year, we're, we're doing a 10 year term and a 10 year hold because of the, um, the Fannie Freddie financing that we're doing. That's all 10 year, uh, 10 year terms. And their prepayment penalties are, are very, very strong, very, very high if we uh, prepay. So that's the big reason why we want to do the 10 year hold. Um, at the end of 10 years, what we'd like to do is do uh, what's called a fund roll-up or an upreit, where we can we can roll up our fund and go into another fund uh, tax-free. That way, there's no there's no sale, so there's no there's no tax consequences. However, what's nice about the fund roll-up or the upreit is the investors that do want to get out at, at year ten they can, and they just have to pay their their gain their taxes on their gains. I mean, I'm I'm uh, I'll be fifty this summer. So I'm still going to need cash flow here for the next, hopefully another 50 years, um, but at least go, you know, past those 10 years. So, and I really see real estate as, as the vehicle to provide that cash flow going forward. Yeah. Well, that's what the left field investor group, we, we like to hear because uh, we're all about, you know, assets that produce cash flow, and, and that's why I'm investing in your deal. And, you know, that, that's the kind of stuff that we like to hear for sure. We're not flippers, Jim. We, um, once we find a property, once we get into it, you know, it takes a good solid year to really know the whole property because you go through every you go through every season of the of the year. And at that point, you know, you know all the issues, you know where the problems are. If it's a good property and you like it, you know, why not keep it? And, you, and it's doing well for you. We just don't. I know there's a lot of people out there that are, you know, buying and flipping. And that's just not our model. We like to, we like to buy and hold and, and, and generate that. Cash. 
Yeah, well, those numbers sound fantastic. So that, that's great. So we're going to close here. And the last question I always ask is um, if you could name a podcast or two uh, that you really like to listen to that we can share with our group. Of course, Jim, I like your podcast. That's a that's a great one. I like the variety of uh, it's not just all sponsors and it's not just all investors. It's a good variety of different different people in the business. Um, I also like uh, Glenn Esterson's uh, The Mobile Home Park Ex- Expert. That's on iTunes. Those are probably my two favorite ones. Oh, Andrew Keel is also another good good one. I think it's called Passive Mobile Home Park Investing. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for the compliment. We always appreciate that. And thank you very much for being a guest. I've enjoyed our conversation and I look forward to, uh, to doing it again sometime soon. Great, Jim. Thanks a lot. Have a good day. That was a great conversation with Jeff Cook. I really like when guests talk about their deals or their funds. It exposes our community to new opportunities and new ways of thinking. And I think we got a lot of that from Jeff. I am investing in that fund. I always like to be honest and transparent about my investments, especially when it goes with uh, guests on the show. I'm really excited about this one. It is a fund, which is not usually my favorite, but we already have all of the assets identified and either in contract or purchased. You can analyze that all you want. I also really like his approach. They're concentrating on New York State, which there aren't many other syndicators that I know of, at least that are in New York State. I don't have any syndication investments in New York State. Left field investors, what we try to do is diversify by sponsor, by market, and by asset class. And this does all three for me. I'm not, I'm in one other mobile home deal, but this gets me into a bunch of mobile home parks. This gets me into New York, which I have nothing in New York. And it gets me in with uh, Cook Properties, which I also am not yet in with. So that's good diversification. They're focused on New York. It's a difficult market. It has rent control and and other regulations that aren't typically landlord friendly. But the fact that they know the market, they have that local knowledge, and they focus on what they do best. They have other asset classes. They're investing in self-storage, and they have office, and they have some retail. But they're getting rid of most of that stuff to focus on mobile home parks because that's where they've found they have the most success. So you focus on what you do best, not only in the asset class, but also in the market. With the number of mobile home parks they're gonna have in New York, it seems like they're gonna have big advantages over the competition because you don't have a bunch of other sponsors in there. You don't have the national people in there. You don't have the regional people even in there. So they kind of have, they have the market cornered a little bit, it seems like. So I'm really excited about this opportunity with them. I also like the 80-20 split to the LPs. There's another mobile home operator who I really think highly of, and they recently went from 40-60, so 40% to the LPs, to 20-80, so 20% to the LPs. Now those deals still pencil on the pro form and still look like they are probably good deals, but at this point, if I wanna be in mobile homes, I'll take 80-20 in a market in New York where we have local expertise with someone who's really gonna focus and concentrate on mobile homes. So again, great conversation with Jeff. I really like his approach. I like his company. And that's why we had him on as a podcast guest. And that's why I'm investing in his fund. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, 
jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.